Went into high school and went completely off the rails. Suspended multiple times, got in with the wrong crowd. Was probably the only Indian brown person in the area that was brought up in. I ended up leaving school. My first job was an apprenticeship. I think it was about 70 quid a week. And I've got no experience. Um, but would you consider giving me a shot? Nobody in our family had ever had a company car and wore a suit. Over a seven year period of my age, I became the top performer at every single level. You know, in my mid twenties, I was the highest earner, earning over six, six figures. For me personally, I think a founder of a business has to be able to sell. Imposter syndrome, you know, something your drive and determination got you through that. Nearly everyone I spoke to that I were my peers were like, don't go down the private equity route. Five, you know, when five or six years old to be where you are now. I mean, reflecting on that yourself, what, what are your thoughts on that? Are you, do you feel a sense of pride? I've always had the ability to visualize where I want to be and what that would look like and how that experience would feel. Is there anything you would share that would be sort of your own common sense for business owners? Um, I think the whole, you know, and it's probably underestimated, but... Hello and welcome to this episode of Uncommon Sense. I'm really, really pleased to say that today we're joined by Des Derry. Des is the founder and CEO at Bloom, which is a customer acquisition specialist for the legal sector. Des, it's it going to be a fantastic guest, I'm sure. Des is currently a finalist in the EY Northwest Entrepreneur of the Year Awards 2023. So a little bit about Bloom. Bloom currently employs over 100 people and... It has tripled in terms of people and revenue in the last three years. So it's a really fantastic story. For me personally, this is great because I knew Des years and years and years ago, sort of right at the start of your journey. And so I'm just so pleased to see how far you've come and how successful the business has been and how successful you've been since. So I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. So welcome, Des. Welcome along to Uncommon Sense. (laughs) What I'd like to start with, please, if we can, is just really to understand your story and your career to date and really how you ended up at Bloom. Sounds good. Sounds good. So I think with uh, most entrepreneurs and founders, there's normally some history. And I think with me, I had a tough start in life. Uh, I was abused as a child. Uh, I was in and out of foster care, didn't go to school and got quite lucky at the age of eight where I was adopted, I'm sorry, fostered and then adopted. And, um, and that then gave me a platform because the family who took me on and two of my younger brothers gave us stability. Working class family gave us stability, got me back into education and just showed me sort of affection, love, a really strong work ethic. But the interesting bit about that is we were the first Indian family adopted by a white family in the UK. So I had a significant culture shift. So my parents, biological parents were Sikh and my dad passed away and my mom really poorly. And I went from, you know, simple things like being a vegetarian to moving in with uh, some very traditional white Sunday roast every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was a real shift, but it was uh, probably the luckiest moment in my life because I wouldn't be here today if they hadn't taken us on. They've already got two of their own children, my brother and sister, they took on three boys. So wow. yeah, owe them a lot. And, uh, you know, as personally my business drive Part of that is just to be to say thank you to them as well because they sacrificed everything, brought up five kids, council estate, you know, 
the, the normal stories that you can hear with entrepreneurs where uh, it's not a great, great beginning. Mm-hmm. So from there, I sort of got that stability and, you know, family foundation score, went into high school and went completely off the rails, suspended multiple times, got in with the wrong crowd. I think one thing to highlight was I was probably the only Indian brown person in the area that was brought up in called Burnswood in Midlands. And I still sort of have, you know, images of the National Front walking past right. on, a, on a Sunday night. So I suppose my defence, I got in with the wrong crowd and they got in with the wrong crowd, partly because it was a level of protection from everything else that was going on. And uh, yeah, and I, I didn't do very well at school. I really struggled. Left school with, you know, two C's, four D's, an E and an F. And my sort of family who brought me up, no one's ever been to university. And my parents, you know, my dad worked in a concrete factory and it was just, you're going to get a job. And as soon as you get a job at 16, uh, you're going to be paying board. And my first job, I was on 50 quid a week and half of that, 25 pound a week, (laughs) went to my parents for board. But as I say, it was that work ethic that sort of, you know, I think has really propelled me where I am now. Wow, that's, there's a lot to unpack there. It really is. I, I didn't know that. So that's a, an amazing story. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, when we talk about drive and motivation and, and where do entrepreneurs get it from? And it's clear that your start was a major factor in, you know, your drive to succeed in, in business. So another thing that strikes me, and I'm interested to get your view on this, is we were speaking to someone a few weeks ago, another younger entrepreneur who's been successful. And interestingly, he was talking about how he didn't have that sort of level of success, if you like, at school. He, he didn't thrive at school and he, he didn't conform to what was expected and all that kind of stuff. And yet he's gone on to be a very successful entrepreneur himself. Do you feel that, so for any, anybody listening who perhaps is, is a younger, aspiring entrepreneur who might find themselves in that situation, what, what would your advice be for them? Um, yeah, I mean, I was not, I wasn't academic, and um, but I always had drive and ambition. And I think what school doesn't teach you is there are other options. And you know, I'm sort of 41 now, but when I was at school, you know, you were very lucky if you had the opportunity to, you know, become a solicitor, doctor, teacher. You know, none of the people I know who I went to school with did any of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have got white collar jobs, some got blue collar jobs, but I think. If you are young and you are struggling with school, there are other options. And I think what the education system doesn't necessarily talk about or teach you, didn't it in my day, was entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and setting up a business, you know, running a business, the compliance that goes with the business. And I think today you think of the different ways you can set up a company out of the bedroom, out of your bedroom, there's endless opportunities and you've got people now monetizing social media channels. So I think, you know, if you are struggling with school, you know, try and work harder at it because it always gives you a foundation and plan B. But, you know, business opportunity, there's, there's so many now and, uh, and you can set something up with very little funding or any, any funding whatsoever, especially with uh, online businesses as well. So, uh, yeah. Mm, brilliant. So after you start then, mm. then you sort of left school and you thought, what, what now? You say you got yourself a job and you were paying yeah, yes. board and then what happened? So so during my sort of last, I think, year or two at school, and I don't know if they still do it now, you sort of forced to do work experience. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I remember in Burntwood, where I'm from, walking around the industrial estates, just knocking on factories and saying, you know, I need some work experience. Will somebody take me on? 
And there's a company called Atlas Hydraulic Loaders, and they said, yeah, we'll take you on. Mm-hmm. So I ended up working for this plant and um, plant machinery sort of manufacturer, distributor. They used to put cranes on the back of, of trucks, and they had like mini excavators. So I was there for a week, and that week really was me sweeping the floors and making drinks for everybody mm-hmm. else. But during that week, got on really well with the managing director there, and I said, look, you know, when I leave school, you know, I've got to get a job. My parents are like, you know, you've got to get a job straight away. Is any chance you give me an opportunity? And would you provide any level of um, sort of training as well so I can get some skills and some qualifications? So I ended up leaving school. My first job was an apprenticeship. I think it was about 70 quid a week. And with that apprenticeship, they let me go to college. And basically, I was learning about plant and hydraulic machinery. Mm-hmm. However, you know, if you ask my partner or any of my friends, I've got the least practical skills in the world. I can't even put up a picture. So working on heavy machinery was not for me. And I sort of stuck that for about a couple of years. I went to college, didn't really, you know, do particularly well with that. And then from there, I bounced around. I had like, you know, factory jobs, retail jobs. And I think another job that I took on that gave me a lot of grounding and resilience was working for Stay Bright Windows, door knocking, mm-hmm. selling double glazing, which is the toughest job when literally people are slamming doors in your face. And then from there, I went to work in a, in a warehouse where I was picking and packing parcels, which were hair and beauty products, a company called Grafton International. And, and I suppose I'll come back to this afterwards, but I'm in this warehouse at the age of 18, 19, and all I'm seeing every morning is people walking past in suits, and those people in suits are going upstairs. And I sort of had a bit of vision and a bit of a dream, just thinking one day, I hope I can be that person that walks past in a suit walks up the stairs and the only way I would do that was to try and get an opportunity in the sales team selling hair and beauty products to salons and wholesalers and uh, thankfully the person who managed the sales team a lady called Sarah North she was a um, chain smoker which meant that she'd be coming down those stairs Mm -hmm. through the warehouse through the double doors stood outside 20 times a day chain smoking and I plucked up the courage and I went to her one day and said look Sarah you know, I'm in the warehouse. I know people from the warehouse have never gone into sales within Grafton's. I know I've got no experience, um, but would you consider giving me a shot? I think I could do it if you give me a really good signing. I'm really ambitious. And at the time, I thought I was getting some lip service. She said, yeah, yeah, of course, if any jobs come up, we'll, uh, mm. we'll let you have an interview. Mm. Anyway, weeks passed, months passed, and then somebody did hand their notice in with the, the lowest tier of sales at Grafton, selling now varnish into, into wholesalers. Yolanda, her name was, lovely, lovely girl. And, uh, and anyway, Sarah said, look, you know, there's a job that's come up. We're interviewing people within the business, external, internal, and we'll let you come for an interview. And uh, obviously, you know, I was you know, absolutely made up. I was getting that opportunity. The people in the warehouse were quite sort of derogatory about it, saying, you know, they're never going to have you. You know, you belong with us. And it was, it was a bit of them and us. So I sort of ignored that. And I booked a day's annual leave, went out and brought a suit, had my moment walking through the warehouse with the suit on. I went for the interview. I have no idea what I said, but I think what came through really strong was passion, drive, and that determination to just sort of change change my life, really. And I'll never forgive Sarah because she gave me the shot. And, you know, I got a you know, company car at the age of 20. It was the most battered company car that they had. And I'm running around the country with my A to Zs in the boot, stopping every five minutes, trying to figure out you know, where to go. There wasn't Google Maps, no. and, you know, sat out in yeah. those days. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and, you know, within six months, a team of 30, I was number one. 
number one and with no with no sort of like you know real product training just passion mm -hmm. desire and that sort of vision of, of changing my life and that just you know I was there for two years consistently the top performer but it wasn't enough you know I was like I want you know I had bigger dreams I want to you know really change my life make my, make my parents proud and they were really proud then because you know nobody in our family had ever had a company car and, and wore a suit you know mm -hmm. that, that that was my background so I remember seeing um, an advert, there was a, a publication called The Grocer, which was a magazine mm -hmm. where, know, yep. you know, businesses would advertise corporates, retail organisations, because again, you didn't have Indeed and everything else then. And there was a massive A4 advert for Yellow Pages. Mm -hmm. And Yellow Pages was owned by the Yale Group. It was a FTSE 100 business. And, you know, at that time, there was sort of north of 2 billion turnover, 800 million a year EBITDA profit. And it had the biggest face-to-face -face sales force in the UK across all sectors. And, you know, I was the top four performer at Grafton's, earning the most commission, but I was only like 20 to 24 grand a year. And Yell, the entry-level salesperson, was 36,000 basic a year, any car that you want, and uh, on, you know, unlimited commission opportunity. And I'm 21 at this time, so, you know, to me, that was like footballer's wages. And I went, for, I went for it, and you know, I probably could say this now, hopefully no one will come after me. But even the application process, I had to lie about my GCSEs, mm -hmm. because unless you had a minimum level of GCSE, they wouldn't even screen you, right. have a telephone consultation. So I remember fudging my GCSEs a little bit, which got me a telephone interview. The telephone interview, then over a six-month period, I had four interviews with different people. And what I got, apart from the last one, was you're too young, You've got no commercial um, awareness. And, you know, yes, you've done well selling now varnish. You're coming to work for a FTSE 100 company with the biggest face-to-face sales force in the UK. And we only take on the best. So back then, Yellow Pages was like Google is yeah. today. Yeah. And it was, you know, the elite, the, uh, the best of the best. I think the same thing happened. I think the final interview, Diane Levitt, who was in each of the interviews as well and bringing in her managers, I said, look, you say you're so good your training so good why aren't you giving me a chance because surely if you're training so good you're telling me that I've got some of the, the sort of the ability to do it surely I should fly and I don't know what happened but I got a call afterwards says yeah we're going to give you a chance again bottom of the ladder we'll give you the training you're the youngest person we've ever taken on and, and I remember turning up to the training down in London and I was surrounded with advertising salespeople. people have come over from phones for you mm -hmm. and the egos and the experience was difficult and I was like you know what I am actually going to sink you know, I'm completely out of my depth and you know took on the training on board again the same drive, drive passion resilience first one in the office last one out they had me running around North Wales trying to sell advertising to you know people that only been in the yellow pages for one year so plumbers builders tradespeople who just thought you were a necessary evil and wouldn't turn up to meet us it was a really really tough 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 job but within six to nine months promoted and then just to accelerate over a seven year period of my age, I became the top performer at every single level to a point where, you know, in my mid twenties, I was the highest earner, earning over six, six figures, winning all the awards, won a gold award where they flew me and my partner out to La Manga in Spain. And uh, I had a phenomenal career, absolutely phenomenal career. So it was, it was again, you know, you talk about luck and opportunities in life that then took me on to the next stage. While I was at Yale, dealing with business owners, the sort of, it started the desire then about, do you know, I wonder if I could build my own business. And I found myself in the last few years was looking after Yale's 
bigger advertiser spending, you know, north of a quarter of a million pound a year. And I was dealing with decision makers then with bigger businesses because the advertising spend was bigger so that they would see me and I did get some respect from them. Uh, but I'd, I'd just be asking the same questions, you know, how did you start? What were mm-hmm. the challenges? Mm-hmm. You know, what would you recommend to anyone who was looking to set up a business? And I'm just absorbing, yeah. asking questions. And then I'm thinking, do you know what? I need to sort of, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it before I'm 30, as in leave. And also, where is the opportunity? And at that time, Yell and Yellow Pages was in decline because Google had come along. Yell refused to sell to Google. And the words of the CEO back then was, you know, we'll never sell to those internet geeks. And Hmm. Yellow Pages was in demise. And I'm going out seeing the customer base and they're saying, look, the number of inquiries that we've relied on for all these years is in decline. We want to do more on the internet. We don't know what to do because we've only ever had yellow pages. So I then invested and did a diploma in digital marketing to get a qualification and understand the fundamentals of digital marketing. Obviously, it changes, evolves all the time. And then I became the sort of the ambassador and the lead within Yell for Yell.com, which was their online offering. And, you know, a company that was employing thousands, I became the Yell.com specialist in the UK. But that gave me a bit of confidence and a bit of a springboard to go, do you know what? I can go out and service these SMEs and get them online by helping them with digital marketing, websites, videos, SEO. And you'll remember when you have well, this that's conversation. Well, that's it, yeah, I'm sat here thinking. 10 years ago, we've had this conversation. This is it, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I left Yale in May 2011 and I formed my first business. And that first business, uh, was called My Marketing Aid. Mm-hmm. And the logo was done on a sofa, fag packet, mm-hmm. me and my partner. The name was, and obviously the first business, I was a marketing consultant going out to SMEs across all sectors, mm-hmm. transitioning them from traditional advertising like print and radio and getting them online. And that went quite well. I mean, I was in the first sort of nine months, I was turning over hundreds of thousands, making more money than what I was making at Yale because I had no overheads or was just working from home. But the problem was, I was sort of outsourcing then all the website design development, the video content production, you'll remember all this, yeah. uh, to subcontractors. Some are good, some are not so good. Some are reliable, some are not so reliable. So I thought, you know what, I need to bring this in-house. But then all, then you sort of become a very different business. Um, so I formed then my, um, my second business, uh, which was MMA Digital, which was a digital marketing agency. So really what I did, I, I pivoted my marketing aid to MMA Digital Marketing Consultant to a digital marketing agency. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I'm in Manchester. And that's what, you know, 2012, if I think back. And there was a lot of digital marketing agencies then within Manchester. And I'm like, how the bloody hell am I going to compete with these guys? I'm very late to the party. But what I did see is those agencies didn't really focus on a particular niche and put all their effort into a particular niche. They were working with lots of sectors and not many of those agencies wanted to particularly work with law firms right. or professional services business like accountancy mm-hmm. firms. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I had some experience working with law firms with Yell and then also my consultancy business. So I thought, you know what, bugger it. I'm going to... If I can't be the biggest digital agency in Manchester, I can certainly aim and have a goal to be the biggest digital marketing agency within a niche. Mm-hmm. And I chose the uh, the legal sector, the legal sector. So anyway, fast forward over a five year period, MMA Digital went on to become the go to digital marketing agency for law firms. And we designed and we built websites. We produced a huge amount of video content. We were mm-hmm. producing video that, content yeah. for you guys. And we ran SEO, PPC and social media campaigns. 
And across that period, we won multiple awards. I spoke at multiple events to the legal sector with lots of partners like the banks, like NatWest, built a really good profile. And yeah, we worked with about a third of the top 200 law firms in the UK, which was great. The problem with a digital marketing agency, which is project-based, is the revenue is quite lumpy. And as I scaled the business up, you know, you sell a website, you get a deposit, but law firms can take a long time to make a decision. Lots of people in that decision-making process. So a project that should take six mm. to 12 weeks can end up taking six to 12 months and you're not able to invoice until the project's done. So personally, it was relentless. I'm running around the country, chasing deposits, trying to finish work, trying to get the team to finish work. And I built it to a million pound turnover, circa two, 300,000 a year EBITDA profit which is great, which was, you know, I was earning good money, but it wasn't really going to take me to where I really wanted to be. Not really scalable either, is that what you were thinking? Wasn't that scalable. And yeah, we were the market leader. Yeah, it was a million pound turnover business, turning out, making a few hundred grand a year profit. So, but one thing that did happen over that seven year period in the legal market, I became the go-to specialist for digital marketing. Lots of respect in the industry. And I saw an opportunity to flip the model and start again. I did pretty much start again, working with some of those existing uh, relationships that I had. And I pivoted MMA Digital to, instead of selling websites for other people, let's build our own websites, let's build some really clever technology, let's generate leads online using my skills and, and team that I could build around me. Let's sell those leads to law firms so they have a tangible return opposed to a video or a website where they don't see the tangible benefit. And what um, what disciplines, legal disciplines do those law firms spend a lot of money and they're buying leads and who, who are they currently dealing with? Are they any good? And are they sort of resting on their laurels or is it, you know, ready for disruption? And uh, yeah, and basically MMA Digital in uh, the summer of 2016 started again and we built, we launched our own brands we built some technology on the Salesforce platform and we became a lead generation business. And I had, there was me and two other people. Two other people. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story, right, right from the start. It's, it's an amazing story. There's a, there's a few things I want to ask you then based on what you've talked about. So you've made it sound so easy, right? And, and it wasn't, I know that. And you know, you talked about drive and determination. And to, the first question I want to ask you really is when, when, when you're in that room with other high-performing salespeople. Let's talk about Yell, which was where you were. Yeah. What was it about you that gave you the edge, do you think, over those those other people that were in the room to sort of succeed and, you know, really become the top performer that you did? I think I went in there sort of thinking I'm out of my depth. So I was the quietest person in the room thinking, crap, I've got myself this job. Yep. Am I actually capable? So then I had the fear. Imposter syndrome uh, is what we're saying. Imposter syndrome, yeah. the fear of failure. The opportunity was so big for me, you know, in my life. I was like, I have to do whatever it takes because, you know, people like me with my background just do not get these opportunities. I cannot fuck this up. Yep. I cannot fuck this up. This is it. This is the sort of game changer in my life and, you know, making sure that I can look after my family and, and friends as well. So it was just, it meant everything to me. And that meant that I would do whatever it took you know, and it was, and I think some of the other people, it didn't last that long. I think they went in there with quite arrogant, you know, we've, we've performed really well for a number of years. It was a completely different league. It was like so challenging, so difficult. And yeah, a, a lot of people just didn't last. And I would just, 
as I say, you know, I was always the first one there, the last one out. I would do more meetings than everybody else. My discipline and resilience and determination and fear of losing that job and that opportunity just meant that, you know, I never felt secure. Yep. I always like, I've got to keep going because mm-hmm. this the rug could get pulled from yep. under me. And I think partly that was from, you know, and I think, you know, my partner talks about this because when I was young, you know, when you're in and out of foster homes, you don't have that stability. And I think always thinking, shit, this could yep. be taken away from me, just drove me really, really hard. So I would say that was probably the thing that I had that no one else had because no one else had been through what I'd been through because it was, you know, quite a unique experience in my life compared to anybody else. Mm. But quite a high level of self-belief as well. Did not, you or not? Not at that time. No. No, not at that time. I would say it's only in the last few years where, I'd probably actually say in the last couple of years where, you know, people have then backed me through private equity where you get that, do you know what, actually I'm all right at this. If people are backing me, we're going through all this due diligence and they're actually seeing something in me, you know what, it's not been pure fluke because I thought, you know, the first job selling now varnish, the yellow pages mm-hmm. of like, you know, I've chanced it a bit here. Yeah. But I think that now I'm like, do you know what, actually over a 20, 25 year period, you've been a consistent high performer and having that stamp of approval with private equity houses go, no, we back you. It's sort of given me that self-belief. But before then, I would say the fear of failure, the yep. fear of losing everything because yep. my background, you know, not having that sort of, you know, that family really from, you know, from an early age. Very interesting. And something else I'm interested in as well is, is obviously a lot of this was selling. And even when you founded your, your first, you know, MMA Digital and My yeah. Marketing Aid, yeah. the success is built on an ability to sell. And clearly you could do that right from the start when you were selling nail varnish yeah. and working for Yale and then selling. You sold to me as well, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, yeah, um, you as well. I remember you did. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, how did you do that? And actually, but, didn't you get a promotion on the back of our video? Um, oh, might you got, have, You got yeah. a round of applause. I did a round of applause. <laughs> do you know what's really interesting is I remember meeting you and thinking, you know, I, I, this, you sold it to me. And obviously I was working in an industry where... You, you were hit the nail on the head, you know, it was moving out of a traditional world, moving into websites, social media. This was, what, 12 years ago, something like that. So what I'm really interested in then to understand is, is you're, you're obviously a top salesman. And you then became a founder and assumed that role of selling your own business as well. So I suppose one question is, what are your, for, for anyone sell, salespeople out there, what are your top tips, I suppose? And my other one is, for anyone who is a founder or a business director listening to this, clearly selling is is part of your job and is part of your role. And so what advice would you have for founders and directors who might be listening to this and maybe find selling uncomfortable? Yeah, so I think if you're stum- somebody starting off in sales, I mean, for me, you know, whatever people think of, um, you know, double glazing salespeople, when someone's slamming doors in your face, and you've got to knock on the next door, and knock on the next door, and knock on the next door, and you only earn any money yep. when you can get someone to buy some double glazing. There's nothing tougher, and the, what that gives you, as I say, and I've used the word several times, that resilience. So I think having something that's really difficult is the foundation, really, in that kind of environment. And then for me, having the professional training at Yale, and they invested a huge amount, then gave me the sort of the psychology of selling, the systems, the consultancy sell, the pitches, that was really powerful. Um, in terms of a business owner, so I'm an investor now, uh, as well as running running um, Bloom. And for me personally, I think a founder of a business has to be able to sell, it has to be able to sell because not only are you selling your products and services, but also, you know, 
I'm looking at Anne in the corner there. I have to sell to Anne. You know, this is why you should join Bloom. You know, when I had a business with no office and I'm trying to convince people to join, when I had a business with three people in a shitty business center trying to sell the dream of where I'm trying to take it, you've got to be able to sell at all levels. Private equity, you've got to be able to sell. So personally, if I'm investing in a company, I have to see sales ability because they have to recruit people, retain people, sell to their products and services, sell to investors, suppliers. And, you know, I would rather back somebody that's got really strong sales ability and then build a team around them who can do HR, finance, marketing and everything else. I think that's a really key, key skill. That's a very, very good answer. I'm also interested then, you, you talked about how MMA Digital pivoted from being a digital agency to, you know, to bringing in the, the leads yeah. yourself. Now, what was the thought process around that? Because there might be businesses listening to this, might be struggling or might, might, growth might have slowed down, whatever it might be. I'm interested to understand from your perspective who, who pivoted and came out the other side, what the thought process was and, you know, how you went about it. Yeah, and I think it sort of, it came about because over a five-year period, you know, MMA did just sort became successful in the sector that it was in, but it wasn't fulfilling my dreams and goals. And I had to sort of look myself in the mirror and say, am I gonna carry on doing this at the same pace, running around the country, doing exactly the same thing? And actually the scalability of this, if I get into two million turnover and four or 500 grand profit, which, which is great, any businesses at that scale, my dreams and ambitions were much, much bigger, much bigger. And I had to just be honest with myself and go, this isn't gonna do it, it's what you do. Do you just carry on because you just invested five years of your life and you've worked your absolute ass off? Mm -hmm. Or do you take a risk? And actually, I then went into research, competitor analysis. Who do these law firms spend money with? I got under the bonnet of those people who are now my competitors. What are they good at? What aren't they good at? And can I do this better? Can I be ballsy enough? And how do I go about it? And what do I do to differentiate? And... Do I just go for it? And I took I took the risk. I took the risk, and and I had you know a plan in place. That it's all evolved, and you've had to we had to change because certain things worked, certain things didn't. But it was the yeah, it was the ultimate. This isn't going to get me to where I want to be, and I need to do something about it. And actually, this is the opportunity, and I've done my homework, <laughs> and I'm going to have to roll the dice and pivot and take take all the risk again, mm -hmm. all the risk again. And it paid off, as I said. So I'm, I'm interested now to, to, to sort of come full circle, if you like, to come to now. Yeah. So you had MMA Digital, you had your websites, and then things really took off for you in the last, so 2017, last sort of six years, really. And I'll come on to it in a minute about, yeah. you know, that was not an easy time, obviously, for the whole world in the last yeah. few years. But you are a success story. And obviously, you've had private equity backing, exited a few times yourself. Yeah. So I'd love to understand a bit more about that story and how Bloom you know, evolved, how it came about, and yeah, where so, it is now. So if I go back to so, so my, uh, my plan to start again with the lead generation company, so I'd built um, my own websites with different brands, and then I'd built a platform on the, on the Salesforce system. And the, the theory was that we could scale the business and sell leads to hundreds and hundreds of law firms, and I could manage it with really low overheads with a small team because technology would do all the heavy lifting. So actually I could scale it and make a load of money, uh, generate a, a product, 
create a product and a service where law firms are getting more value for money and I don't have the headache of big overheads and having a big team to manage. That was the theory. So when we went live and we started selling leads to law firms, the way that it worked is somebody would search on Google, go onto one of our websites, fill in the form. That form then would hit Salesforce. Salesforce then had a like a round robin system, would allocate that lead to a law firm around the UK. Law firm would then be notified. They would then log in, phone that client to try and get hold of them, capture them, qualify them, convert them and process them. I thought, surely that, that will do it. That, yeah. that, that will completely set us apart and uh, I can just scale it from there. Little did I know that when a law firm got notified about a lead, um, they haven't got the front of house capability, desire, speed of response, fastest finger first in a really competitive market that we're generating the leads to. Mm-hmm open the platform, phone that customer, maybe phone that customer seven to 10 times to try and get hold of them because you're dealing with consumers that are just running around. They just don't have that ability. So actually the first two years of that business were really difficult because I was losing customers as in law firms because they were saying the quality is really poor because the leads that I was sending were raw and not qualified because they were going directly from the website to them. There was no qualification. And it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. I was like winning a law firm. They'd give me a go because they trusted me. They liked the, the theory, the technology, but actually what they didn't have was that front of house qualification. And I had to change that. I had to change that. So then I had, you know, I had to invest and I had to take, take mm-hmm. I had to personally invest. And the business completely changed really because I went from a raw lead model to a qualified lead model. And that didn't come easy because I had two failed attempts outside outsourcing the front of house lead qualification. So my sort of plan was, I need to turn this from a raw lead model to a qualified lead model, but I don't want to build a contact center, a core center to qualify those leads in house because that just completely changes the business. I need to employ people, move mm-hmm. offices. Mm-hmm. I've never built a core center for where the bloody hell do I start mm-hmm. there? So I'll just outsource it to people who know what they're doing and just pay them a monthly service fee. Both of those things failed miserably for a number of reasons. And again, my reputation took a, took a hit. And my competitors are just trying to kill me off. Any opportunity, very aggressive. We work in a really competitive market. And um, and then I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna have to do this myself. And I had to then set up a business within a business. So now we have a contact center. In fact, we've got multiple contact centers where all the leads that we generate are qualified by experts seven days a week who are highly trained, working on really clever technology. They then, you know, convert about 80% of the, sorry, 20% of the leads that we come into, 80% are then pushed to one side, which means law firms are getting qualified leads. So our product and offering now is really high end because we're doing all the, mm-hmm. the front end qualification and lifting. And that has meant that customers, law firms have, you know, retained, spent more, move, spend away from our competitors because, you know, we're not perfect. We're always trying to get better, but compared to where we were, the model has just completely moved on. And that has led to, you know, significant growth in revenue. We're now the biggest player in the market. We've made, multi, you know, two acquisitions and, uh, you know, a team of 100, 130 people recruiting all the time. So, yeah, it's um, it was it was having that, you know, taking that risk again. So I think any founders, you know, don't be afraid to pivot and you know, if you're not achieving those dreams and ambitions, you know, um, change 
yeah. change, go for it because it, you know, you know, it's um, it's paid off for me. Well, the things I've, I've picked up from what you've said are: don't be afraid to pivot mm. and really niche down. Mm. And I think you know th- that to yeah. me, you know, we, we hit the whole point of this podcast when we set it out was things that you might find in a textbook, but the real life story, you know, the real life case study. I'm looking at Ollie, our producer here, that that's what we set out to do. And, and this is this is a, a real world story of people who, you know, you read this stuff about find a niche, but you really did. And then you hear these stories about how to pivot, you know, if it's not going the right way, and you did. And yeah. look at where you are now. So it's it's a brilliant story. So you. You, if you don't mind me talking about this, I'd like to have a quick chat about the private equity yeah. side of things because private equity sometimes gets quite a negative rap, if you like. Mm. I think owner-managed businesses, as you were, it can be quite daunting to go to private equity. Mm. Some of them can feel that perhaps the culture and the, I don't know, the tradition and the, the, if it's a family business in particular, you know, that feel can be taken away by private equity. I'm interested to know what your experience was, how it came about, and, and how you found the whole process. So I shit myself. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the, the reality of it. And the, the way it came about and the reason why I did it. So, you know, Bloom was growing and I was, I was sort of thinking, how do I get external investments into the business to accelerate that growth? So the way that it's going, it's probably going to take me 10 years to get to where I want to get to. Can I accelerate that? And it was getting to a point where I'm personally investing, but you know I didn't have enough capital to make acquisitions, attract the hires that I wanted to bring into the business, really scale the business up to the next stage. So my options were, you know, bank debt, yep. investors, private equity, and I tried bank debt. That was difficult. I tried personal investors. That was difficult. But one thing I did learn, I also spoke to quite a few corporate finance houses. This is going back to. Uh, 2019, yeah, 2019. While I'm sort of, again, you, you research and you're speaking to people, you're speaking to people who've got private equity, people who've got bank funding, other entrepreneurs. So I'm just, you know, my partner always says you're like a sponge, you know, you'll just absolutely absorb. You'll ask a load of questions, absorb it all. And what corporate finance were telling me was, if you want to get on the private equity route, your business has to meet a number of key metrics. And one of those is they're not even going to have a conversation with you unless your business is making over a million pound a year net profit. So that was a goal for me. I'm like, you know, if these guys are even going to take me seriously, I need to get it over a one million. And thankfully we've got it, you know, we'd got it well over one, one million with, you know, the ability that it was on track to do a hell of a lot more. So that sort of ticked that box. Mm-hmm. So then I instructed a corporate finance house and then COVID kick, kicked off. So instead of going out to meet these various private equity houses who have the teaser, some of them want to meet you, some of them don't. Interestingly, um, because the sectors we operate in, we're in, you know, consumer legal services, predominantly claims, and there's a lot of private equity houses out there. Most of them, as soon as they saw we're in the legal sector and claims, didn't even want to have a conversation with me. Okay. Didn't even want to give me the time of day. Some of them who did were quite dismissive mm-hmm. and a little bit rude. But I didn't have the ability to go and see them face to face because we were in lockdown. So it was all done via Teams. But yeah, I mean, I think it came down to, you know, we had a few people interested. We got a few offers. And I think what they really brought into, which goes back to my selling now varnish, yellow pages mm-hmm. days, is my passion. Mm-hmm. And then and, it, and I think they could just see something in me. And I had something. And these guys are dealing with people like me all the time. And they must see some like characteristics 
And yeah, and I went for Rock Paul. Mm-hmm. And coming back to, you know, why did I shit myself? Well, I've never done it before. You know, you're meeting people and 95% of them are Oxford, Cambridge graduated. I sound as I, as I sound. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't talk like them. I don't look like them. I don't have their education. And it was really daunting because also they are financial engineers and they can run rings around you. And I'm a, you know, someone who's built something from nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was really daunting. Um, yeah, yeah. But you yeah. came through it again though. You see, that's interesting to me because you, right, you talked about when you're in the room, again, something's like elevated to another level, but talking about the yell and there we are, I've got to do it. Yeah. And here you are uh, 15, 20 years later, almost in that same situation again, the same self-doubts, perhaps imposter syndrome. Yeah. But you, you know, something, your drive and determination got you through that. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned about speaking to other founders. So I'm, I'm a member um, of a few business groups and, you know, some, some really high profile people in those business groups as well. And because of my age, not that I'm young anymore, but a lot of those leaders within those groups are a lot older than me and they're sort of at the end of their careers and they've made their money through through like generation businesses or they've had various uh, events. And actually, nearly everyone I spoke to that I were my peers were like, don't go down the private equity route. Mm. And most of them hadn't even had a conversation with a private equity house, but they'd heard someone on the golf course saying they'd had a bad experience. So actually, if I'd taken the advice of the people that I've surrounded myself with in terms of those business peers, I wouldn't have gone down private equity. But actually for me, I was like, well, no, you know, I'm not you. Mm-hmm. And you're at a different stage in your life. I need to grow this business and I want to accelerate the growth. This is an opportunity. I'm going to explore it. I'm really nervous, shitting myself. Mm-hmm. But if I can find the right partner that believes in me and they can believe in the, the vision of the business and the strategy, I need to do it. Yeah. I need to do it because I need to find a way of making acquisitions and doubling, trebling, quadrupling the size of the business. And the only way I'm going to do that is by getting a financial partner and somebody that can help me strategically on board as well. Yeah, it strikes me as that, you know, it was a good match for your private equity in a sense because, you know, people talk about, do you go equity or debt? And then when you're talking about private equity, it strikes me that um, you're, you know, you're very much aligned with the goals. So you, whereas if you're taking debt, maybe from a bank, they might not be engaged in the business or yeah. aligned with where you're going with. But when you're going through the private equity route, whilst it's risky, obviously, and a bit daunting, you are aligned and you are driven. And I'm guessing the private equity guys at Rockpool are massively driven as well. If, so actually it's a good match. Yeah, and, and I would say out of all the people that I've met and I've you know, met afterwards and, and going through that sort of process with my first round of private equity, why did I choose Rockpool? Well, it wasn't because they're called Rockpool. It was because of the partner that believed in me called Guy Ellis, who's become a personal friend. And I think everything in business comes down to relationships. Mm-hmm. And I would say the relationship that I built with him straight away, how he invested his time to understand me, my personal needs and requirements, the business needs and requirements before we'd even done the deal. And then during the due due diligence process where it can get really fraught and you feel like, you know, these guys are about to, you know, take over, it's not gonna be my business. You know, the commercials, the legals, you know, when lawyers get involved, it can get even more fraught. Mm -hmm. Um, And you should be able to pick up the phone going, look, you know, what's going on here and having those frank conversations. And then once the deal's done, they're still the same, he's still the same person. So I would say for me, I went on 
and I do this for my recruitment, it's my relationships. I, I go for my gut feel, relationship. Am I gonna be able to work with this person? You know, for Rockpool, it could have been for three, five, 10 years. I mean, it turned out to only be 12, 18 months because we've got another private equity house on board. But, you know, I think it says a lot when it's still like a personal friend now. And yeah, and it's a relationship. It was a relationship because when you are a single founder of an organization, it is your baby. You know, it means everything to you and you've put everything into it. You've risked everything. You've been through some really dark times to suddenly allow somebody else in. Yes, there's the capital, but that's a part of it. It's the sort of like, can I work with this individual in this business every single day? And when things aren't going well, are they going to be supportive? And are we going to be able to collaborate and get through it? And they're going to be in the trenches with me. And I had that all the way through. And uh, and as I say, thankfully, we never had, you know, those tough times with them, but I just know that they would be there. And then there we are, you, you, you said it yourself, you then had another exit, sort of private equity event, only 18 months later. Yeah. So how it was less that, than that, actually. Less. It, was, it was actually, um, it was 10 months. Was it? 10 months, yeah. I was just thinking like thinking about the time. It was 18 months working with Rockpool from the initial offer, DD, transaction, FCA approval. Yeah. So yeah, it was sort of end-to-end with them 18 months. And then from completion, from Rockpool to Sun Capital Partners, it was 10 months, which I'm told by the people who work in private equity, that's never happened before. Okay. Uh, across the UK. I've never heard of it. Potentially no. even globally, so uh, yeah, might be in the Guinness. So what happened there, just so we can understand that and the listeners can understand, what happened in those 10 months, it just literally, the growth trajectory was so high that another partner said, actually, we fancy that. Um, no. <laughs> well, so basically what happened was, so we had a plan in place so Bloom was um, making acquisitions in its core market to become the biggest player like we are now then we had a strategy in place to diversify and replicate the model through acquisition and organically in other sectors so a plan was being executed where we were we were about to buy a another business that sells leads in a completely different sector I won't name who it is and once that one was done, they would then buy up other people in that sector. And then ultimately, over time, we would be lead generation across multiple consumer sectors. And we were focusing on regulated markets. Mm-hmm. So the niche was regulated markets, lead generation, consumer legal services. And yeah, we got offers in with people. And yeah, basically what happened was um, one of the law firms that we work with called Fletcher Solicitors, who were a customer of Bloom, they're owned by a private equity house called Sun Capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fletcher's, we, as Bloom, we do a lot of events and we, we tend to like, you know, look after our clients and take them out. And um, I took Fletcher's to, to an event. It was the Grand Prix at Silverstone. And actually it was the 12-month anniversary a couple of weeks ago. And we had a really good day out. And so the, group, the, the, the group CEO, the CEO of Fletcher said, look, what's your plans for your business? And I said, I'm looking to do another round of private equity in the next 12 months. We've got a diversification strategy in place where we will stick with legal and get bitter, but they're bigger, but we're gonna move into other sectors. I've got a 10 million pound turnover business in heads of terms. I've got someone that can help me lead the next round of private equity that can demonstrate to the larger PE house they can scale it again. I will then maybe step into a chairman type role. And anyway, he said, that sounds absolutely amazing. You know, your business is great, your growth, you've obviously had one round of private equity already. You know, we love the work that you guys produce. We love we love you. Do you want to have a coffee with, um, with some capital partners? And uh, this was on the Sunday and I said, well, Yes, but only because I don't want to offend you. But if the tire kicking, please don't like waste my time because you know we're literally about to buy another business, 
and I've put an offer out to someone who'd become the CEO of Bloom and move us on to the, all the sectors, technology expert, the new PE house would buy into them. And as I say, I would take a bit of a step back. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I then had a conversation with Sun Capital who said, we absolutely love your business. Your growth is absolutely incredible. So that was the Sunday. I think I had a conversation on the Tuesday and they put an offer in by the Friday. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable story, Des. I mean, like you say, I don't, I've never heard of anything like that I don't before. think it's ever happened before. No, I mean, that, it's crazy, but it's brilliant. And yeah. knowing, knowing the story, and, and I guess, as you've shared with us today, like wh- where it started. If you think, you know, that's why I keep thinking of where it started, five, you know, when five or six years old, to be where you are now. I mean, reflecting on that yourself, what, what are your thoughts on that? Are you, do you feel a sense of pride? Do you feel... I don't know. I'm just really interested to understand that. I think, and I'm not, I can talk about this later, but I think, you know, if I was to give any advice to any founder is the thing for me, and when I speak to people who are quite elite in sport, and when you look at some, you know, people a lot more successful than me around the world doing sport, music, business, um, have you heard of visualisation techniques uh-huh. and vision boards? Uh-huh. And I think for me, I've always had the ability to visualize where I want to be and what that would look like and how that experience would feel. So when things have been really tough, I've always had that vision and that visualization of, well, this is why you're doing it. And I think if I reflect back, what are the things that I am that I am proud of? Well, you know, to be able to go to my parents, look what I've done. I wouldn't have done this without you. You know, what car do you want? What house do you want? What holiday do you want? They don't actually want any of those things because they are working class people, which is really mm. frustrating. That's a separate, separate subject. So I think achieving some of those things on my personal vision board at a time when my parents are still around has been really, really important. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I love holidays and experiences. I didn't go on a plane until I was like 19. So to be able to now go on holiday and have experiences and look after my friends and family. So I think, you know, yeah. Uh, and then building a business with some really good people. When people get promoted, like, you know, Anne's in the room, she's not been with us that long, had a major promotion already, deserves it, and others. I think that's really, really rewarding. And when you've created something from nothing, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's absolutely brilliant. Especially, I think, you know, there'd be lots of other founders like me where, you know, if you were to ask my teachers at school, they were like, he's going to amount to nothing. Because we, we spoke to a guy, Stephen Summers, a few weeks ago, and that's that's pretty much what he was talking about in terms of, you know, similar sort of story to you, but successful, you know, was was a musician actually, and then has done very well. Check it out, episode four, if you're listening to this. But he, he, he had the same you know, thing to say, which was his vision was what really pushed him on and, and sustained him and what he wanted to achieve for his family yeah. and what he wanted to achieve you know, for his kids. And, and it sounds like that's a common theme among successful entrepreneurs and business founders. And I'm guessing for any founder, that's yeah. why you're doing it ultimately is for your personal vision, I suppose. Yeah. And that's really, really good. I'd like to talk a bit more about leadership, if that's okay, mm. which is a bit more of a gen- uh, sort of generic subject, but we're hoping that, you know, the people that listen to this are business leaders and business owners. So, this is my, I'm going to ask you anyway. I don't care. I was about to ask you a tricky question. Are you a good leader, do you think? What makes a good leader, do you think? Am I a good leader? I mean, I've never been given any sort of, you know, when I was working at Yale, I managed myself. I never had any professional management leadership training. I've then invested in doing leadership training through Vistage and, and other things. I think one thing I'm probably good at, I think, and that's probably because of my 
previous experience is I'm willing to give people a chance and I'm willing to promote people based on attitude. Obviously, they need to demonstrate capability, but for me, if people demonstrate the right attitude, and which is what happened with me when I got the nail varnish job and the South and the yellow pages job, I think I think that attitude and passion, and have, you can just see actually they've got something about them and giving them a chance. So I think I've always been good at that, and you know, thankfully when I look back, you know, nine times out of ten I've been right. Uh, so I think that gut instinct has sort of developed over time and uh, to a point where. And again, referring to, and you, you know, I've offered jobs on, on in the first interview and probably shot people because you just see it, you just see it. And uh, so I think, yeah, um, I'm also good at, you know, some founders want to control everything. And I've always been, you know, my skill set is relationships, sales, uh, you know, digital marketing. I'm not an accountant, you know, I've got no HR training. So, you know, the ability to sort of, bringing people around you that are better than you, that have got expertise in those particular disciplines. Some founders can be control freaks and they don't uh, let go. And I think you have to let, get, get, have people have autonomy mm-hmm. and give them some headroom to develop, grow, make mistakes, mm-hmm. learn from those mistakes. And I'm not someone that's like, you know, I have to be all over everything. I trust people and I give them the opportunities and then, you know, it's down to them to prove you know whether they're capable of not. Yeah. Mm. It, it's interesting because you, you've also talked a lot today about you know how you 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 were a sponge. Mm. You absorbed information and you talk to people and you take what they'd got and you take from here and you take from there. Do you think that that as a, as a, a leader and as, as got to you know where you are now? Do you think that that has helped you to not almost be not arrogant? You're not arrogant at all. I, I, and I've known you for a long time, and you you're definitely not. Do you, do you feel that that's important trait for you personally and for other founders and leaders? You think? I think it's a it's a fine balance actually because when I was doing my first private equity deal and you know really intense and uh, you know and as I say it was you know really daunting because you're about to let somebody into your into your business and have I chosen the right person? These guys are a lot smarter than me and actually that that lack of confidence can go against you because one thing I never said to myself as I'm going through it well yes these are Oxford, Cambridge graduated and they are financial geniuses and they speak very different to you. But you've built something from nothing and you've come from nothing. And I think not having that inside me probably at times might have put me off from going through because so I would say, yes, don't be arrogant, but also in certain situations. And again, as I'm getting older and I'm, you know, I've got multiple deals under my belt now and everything else, you sort of, your confidence builds. And I think it's, it's your own confidence based on a long mm-hmm. track record. So I would say, you know, at a certain stage, if you've got a good track record, don't be afraid to be backing yourself and go, no, actually, I can do this because I've done this consistently for a long period of time. But yeah, you can't, you know, uh, uh, yeah, arrogant. Uh, you know, I don't tolerate arrogant people. No. Yeah. It's, it's just so interesting doing, you know, we've done a few of these podcasts now and, and some of the themes are so similar, you know, for these business owners who are successful. So, you know, attitude over aptitude, something we spoke about on a recent podcast with another guest, Caroline, and also, you know, we were talking about this Money Penny's very successful mm-hmm. business, you know, based near us in Wrexham. And, you know, that's exactly what they say. They employ people based on on attitude. Yeah. They can teach the aptitude, but yeah. they can't teach the attitude. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Uh, you're talking about vision. That's something else. That's- I think just to add to that, what you were saying that actually, and, and again, it's probably linked that to back to my background, but, you know, 
I will take people on if they haven't got, you know, your classic five A's, you know, they've been to university. I mean, I, I don't even, I'm not even wired that way. So, you know, certain organisations, you know, again, when I was going for my job at Yale and I was applying for, for other things, you know, unless you'd got uh, a degree, you couldn't even get an interview. So for me, you know, again, it comes back to, you know, if you had a tough start in life, sometimes that could be the best people to take on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and you run about other companies. I mean, you think of Timpsons and James Timpson, yeah. he literally goes into prisons and he gives people jobs who have been in prison. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So you've just mentioned a very well-known business leader there. Are there any business leaders that you have looked up to, you know, throughout your career or look up to now, would you say? I think, well, I think a part of the business groups that I'm involved in, there's multiple people across multiple sectors, which I do look up to, and they've been really generous with their time. And, you know, we meet up on a regular basis. So, you know, I'm a member of Vista, just some really strong leaders in there with some huge organisations. I look up to all of those guys, but we sort of debate, share challenges. And uh, I've got to, I suppose, a point now where, you know, they get a lot from me as well. So mm-hmm. that, that's really rewarding. I think one thing I, I always do, I'm not one for reading lots of books, but I listen to lots of podcasts. So I'm always looking to listen to people that talk about visualization. And, uh, you know, he is in business, very successful business member. He's more famous for other stuff, but people like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. If you look about his background, business, property, film, politics. So yeah, I'm inspired by, you know, lots of people, but I quite like the ones where, you know, they've had a tough start and they've had a dream and a vision and then they've fulfilled it and I like to unpick what kind of characteristics they've got and uh, yeah. yeah. So you talk about Vistid which is yeah. you know the, the leadership development yeah. program that you're are you yeah. currently doing that or have yeah. you completed yeah. it? Yeah, no. currently doing it. So how, how, how important do you think that is as a business leader? You know you're there you've done it Des you've, 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 you, you might have further ambitions I'm sure you do knowing you but you know you, you've, you've reached that summit if you like. Yeah. Do you still think it's important to keep learning and going on those programs without a doubt I mean I've been a member of Vistage for a number of years and I found that very valuable because we share businesses have similar challenges and even they're in different sectors just sharing those challenges with some people that might have been through it and you can hopefully navigate the mistakes by speaking to someone that's already been there so I think you know definitely a leader should invest uh, not only money, but their time in being part of groups, but really good groups with the right people who have the right speakers. Yes, yeah, so I think that's really important. But when I did my first private equity deal, because I had that, I'm in a world I don't understand. The next thing I did, I signed up to become a member of Pep Talks to surround myself with people that were working with private equity or the founders, mm-hmm. because coming back to being a sponge, I'm in a world I don't know. Let me speak to people who have been in this world for a while. So again, I um, I can navigate some of the the sort of challenges that might be ahead. So without a doubt, it does surprise me actually where you get founders that are just in the business and they're not investing time in themselves because they can't be a better leader and a better you know entrepreneur unless they're investing in themselves because you've got nothing else to then give to the business. And I think it's absolutely critical. I think that investment is, uh, yeah. it's not fair on the people if that leader isn't looking at ways of improving themselves because the people aren't going to develop further and the business won't, won't develop further, potentially. So have you ever had a business coach or a mentor? Yeah. What role do you see those playing for you and in business? I still do, still do. So yeah, I have a business coach. I also have coaches where some of the things are relatable. So for example, I train in Muay Thai, Thai boxing, and uh, Grandmaster Sken, you know, in his 60s now, brought Muay Thai to the UK. And 
a lot of the strategy around Muay Thai, the discipline, the training, the techniques, bizarrely, some of it's so transferable to business. And then speaking to him about some of his challenges as somebody who's Thai moving to the UK in the 60s, 70s, and how he had 70 pound in his pocket and he's gone on to build a worldwide academy of Muay Thai fighters and he's like grandmaster of the world mm-hmm. uh, is really inspiring. So uh, yeah, so there's, there's the things that aren't directly linked to business, but actually still really inspiring. And some of those things are really transferable. And uh, yeah, I think it's really important. I think for business coach, but personal, personal coaches as well. Yeah. I absolutely love that. And it's an interesting, it leads us onto a, a topic talking about your, your fitness is really important to mm. you and well-being mm. and I guess mental health and all of that side of things too. So what, what role does that play at Bloom? What role does that play for you in business, that side of things? Yeah, I think um, it gives me some exercise. When I've had my darkest times, I've turned to exercise to give me clarity. And, uh, you know, I've had those moments where I'm not sleeping and waking up at four in the clock in the morning and I've gone out running. And just having that time to think... <laughs> decompress clarity to then move forward you know has been absolutely vital and yeah I think having an environment where you encourage healthy eating exercise is really key but I think as a leader you do have a responsibility where people are looking up to you Mm -hmm. and uh, for me personally you know I've now got a responsibility there's people in this business who have got you know they've had a tough start in life people from different ethnic backgrounds and you know, you, you, you've got to, I've got to inspire people as well. And I don't feel I can be inspiring people if not, if I'm not in my best condition physically, mentally. So um, yeah, I think being a leader, you've got to think about who's around you and your behaviours. And, you know, I want someone, you know, who's 19, 20 to think actually I can be like Des one day. And there's no reason why they can't because I've proven it. So I think, yeah, there, there is that sort of level of responsibility. And it's, as I say, yeah, it's, your, it's your physical, mental health and, and also how you conduct yourself in and outside of a business as well. Yeah, it's it's absolutely key, I think, from from the conversations I've had with other business leaders and I suppose just from my own perspective, you know, business owners and leaders, they set the tone. Mm. I, I think sometimes business owners maybe don't realise that their employees see mm. the way they are mm. and they follow them. And, and so everything you do sort of sets, like I said, it sets the tone for mm. everyone else to follow in the business. Mm. And it sounds like values, your values and culture are playing important parts here at Bloom. So could you talk to me a little bit about what you're trying to build here in in that sense and behaviours and that sort of side of things? Yeah, I think we've got a very inclusive, diverse workforce from, you know, everybody from everywhere. And I love that. I love walking into the business and there's people from everywhere. And, you know, we are a business that gives people opportunities based on attitude and not necessarily qualifications. I think we're quite vibrant as well. And uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's never been like, you know, you've got to turn up in a shirt and trousers or mm-hmm. anything like that. But, but in terms of, you know, I want it to continue to scale. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be making more acquisitions. We've got multiple offices now. I want us to be investing more in technology. I want us to keep being disruptive. So I think, of, you know, six years ago when I was out there, this is why we're different, go with us. We're a disruptive business. It's all right saying it, it's doing it. And now we've got capital behind us. We can, we've got a technology team. We've never had a technology team. We've got R&D. We can afford to build project, um, invest in projects. And some of them, we can afford for them to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way that you go on and we can we can step up to the next stage. So, uh, but yeah, I think career progression as well. You know, we sort of, 
when we're inducting new people and some of the, you know, we have a learning development team now and uh, they talk about when they joined, which was only a few year, years mm-hmm. ago, some of them, um, and how they've had multiple promotions. And it's brilliant because it comes back to inspiring people. And, you know, as I say, for me, it's those, you know, a, a guy shook my hand outside, he's been with the business two weeks and he's like, you know, this is great, I'm absolutely loving the train. And I'm saying to him, look, you know, there's real opportunity. I'm not just saying it, speak to some of the people. And, and I think it comes to, you know, they the, the need to shoot for the, the stars, really. And, and you're inspiring them, you hope, by your story. How much of your story do your employees know about? Not, I don't think end to end, because I've only got comfortable personally talking about it in the last sort of like 18 months, two years. It's took time for me to sort of go, do you know what, I can actually talk about this now. And I think some of that is because I felt like I've not achieved enough to even be able to share my story. So I think now I feel like, you know what, you have got a story to tell, you can share it. And, you know, people can't say, who do they think he is? Because, you know, I've gone on to do something that's doing that's doing quite well. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's that time really. So I've now got a bit of a platform and I think I need to use the platform because there'll be other people, you know, going through tough times as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think, again, it comes back to, I've got a bit of responsibility to, sort of help some of those people as well so i suppose we're we're nearing the end of our conversation it's been absolutely fascinating and it's gone to places i i didn't expect so thanks so much i I, i'd like to sort of just before we finish talk a bit more about your new business that you've just invested in because as you say the tables have turned slightly now des derry des derry is now the dragon the dragon that's what i'm saying so which is really interesting so this again the story's sort of gone full circle could you tell me about well, firstly, about travel scene, yeah. what the business is, and why you chose to invest in that business. Yeah. So, so before I go into that, I suppose I'll, I'll come back to the sort of vision and vision board. So, um, I've now got new things on the vision board and new goals. So, the way that I sort of see um, my life panning out now, what I want to be doing, I've got Bloom, which is you know medium to large organisation, a part of a much larger group and with a very large private equity house. And that business is just gonna grow and grow and grow. And it's, you know, professionalized, lots of technology, and it's become, you know, ultimately it's gonna become quite corporate over time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 gonna, it's gonna have to for the size and scale that we've got. So I've got Bloom, which is, you know, the founder of Bloom, the CEO of Bloom. But then I also wanted, because fortunately I'm in a position now where I can pick and choose what I wanna do. So I wanted a passion project. And now I wanted a purpose-led project. So my passion is travel and and experiences. And the opportunity came about to invest in travel scene, partner up with Jen Atkinson, who's got a track record building a luxury travel business that surpassed 100 million turnover. It's already got some private equity behind it and a couple of other high net worth private investors. And, and yet it's absolutely fun. Who doesn't love talking about... No. Uh, travel and experiences and it's it's an early stage business where my experience with setting up and pivoting businesses customer acquisition which is what bloom does and actually small things so jen also lives in didsbury like i do and travel scene is now based in where bloom were based wow. three years ago wow, so it's just so it's just like the whole thing is coming around full circle but yeah very ambitious i mean jen you know you've you've had a podcast with jen mm-hmm. an extremely driven talented individual and you know that business is going to scale rapidly with acquisitions we've got a number in the pipeline organically and um yeah it's, it's just really exciting but at the moment as i say it's that early stage where i was 
you know, three, four mm. years ago where I can add a lot of value, but I'm doing it because I'm really passionate about it mm -hmm. and I really believe in Jen. So coming back to backing people, yeah. as soon as I met her, you know, I'm like, how big do you want the check to be? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> this, 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 you know, you've got the track record and you yeah. could just see it in there. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and as I say, it was, that's my passion project. And then my, my, um, my purpose-led project. So people talk about purpose and giving back and all the rest of it. And I felt that I didn't just want to do something for the sake of doing it. And then someone says, you know, gives you a pat on the back. Well done. You're, you're sort of giving bit back something back. And it didn't mean anything to me. So I've got something that I'm going to be announcing uh, in the coming weeks, which is supporting people from underprivileged backgrounds, from ethnic minority communities, not just ethnic minority communities, but underprivileged backgrounds who are in combat sports while training Muay Thai. And it's their way out of difficult situations they might be involved in personally because they haven't got necessarily the qualifications or the family support um, or the yeah, the academic ability necessary to get out and they see combat sports as a way out, but there is no funding in it, there is no money. So a lot of these people are living hand to mouth until they get picked up by you know the big boxing or combat sport promoters, which is very few and a lot of people don't realize. So. Um, yeah, watch this space. There's going to be a technology platform where those up-and-coming people in combat sports were looking to change their lives, and that's their only way out. They work really hard. They're really talented. Um, can monetize some of their social media following using some clever technology. So uh, yeah, I'm looking to invest and help guide uh, a few other people that I've known for a number of years who are also in that combat sports world. So that's my purpose. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. It's it has been everything I hoped it would be this conversation Des if I'm honest with you it's it's been so good to as I said right from the start to see where you started you know and I didn't expect to go that far back so you know thank you so much for being so honest and uh, clear with us and sharing your story and I appreciate you said it wasn't easy and you've only just sort of come to, to terms with it but it's mm -hmm. it's so interesting to me how our early life experiences shape us and mold us more than we think and clearly you're early life experience shaped you in a in a dramatic way and, and look where you are now mm. before we wrap up then we ask every single director or person that we interview on this podcast to share it's the, it's the title of the podcast yeah. their uncommon sense yeah, yeah. i was wondering if there's anything that you've got that you'd share with our listeners and viewers that might be sort of a bit different different from what they might read in a textbook you said you don't read that much yourself yeah. is there anything you would share that would be sort of your uncommon sense for business owners I think the whole you know and it's probably underestimated but visualization and I think the power of visualization just physically seeing it because the force that it can create to achieve it is like untouchable and you know I would I would advise don't just take my word for it. When you sort of get under the skin of the likes of Lewis Hamilton, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger, leading tennis players, musicians, business people, there is a common trend where they talk about visualization. And for me, not so I'm, you know, I'm any Lewis Hamilton or anyone like that, but it's definitely worked for me without a doubt. So I would say, if you're a business owner, founder, director, do some research about visualization and create a vision board because um, I don't know how but the sort of the way it can just make you get back on track 
no matter what goes on in your life has been really powerful and the um the drive that it seems to be able to generate when you can visually see what that would feel like and on that vision board it could be that holiday doing something for your family paying off your mortgage driving your dream car giving something back you know meeting your partner whatever it could be whatever it is i just think having that as a reference point on your phone you know every day has been really powerful for me personally such a fantastic answer des and i suppose when i first met you 12 13 years ago as you talked about right at the, at the start we talk about vision and the future it was clear to me when i met you 13 years ago that Des You've Derry, have I not? No, I've exactly not aged either. I still don't shave, by the way. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but, you know, 13 years ago when we first met, it was clear to me that even then, Des Derry was destined for, for big things. I mean, I bought into, into you then through my, the company I was working for, but it, it doesn't come as any surprise to me that you have, you know, ended up where you are, the success that you've achieved. It wasn't easy. And you came from a difficult background, but, you know, your drive and determination, it's really inspiring. And I hope that people who've listened to this and watched this will be inspired by you. It's a pleasure to have spoken to you. And thanks for joining us on Common Sense. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Pleasure.